Hi, and welcome to the Print Spaces podcast, Sell Out. This is our 10th episode, and I just want to say thank you very much to everyone who's listened so far and who's shared the podcast. We've had a great response to it, and I think this is because we're willing to talk about how to think commercially as an artist and how to market yourself, and there isn't a whole lot of advice out there about this vitally important subject. The difference between the, say, content going viral versus what we do with paid that I find is a really smart move for artists with the paid social is that we actually are able to get the audience that would purchase an original painting that actually has that budget for these larger pieces versus I've seen a lot of videos that will go viral. Usually you actually end up attracting other artists, which is amazing, that are inspired by your work, which is great. And that serves a purpose, but those people aren't necessarily going to buy your high-priced art more reach on organic doesn't necessarily mean these are customers like buyers of art right so what we were able to do with the paid social as victoria said is we capture customer data customer interactions of the people who actually bought and then we target audiences using the paid that are customer audiences and then we're growing the audience of people who actually are not just they wanting to consume the content on organic, they actually want to purchase art. That was Victoria Park and David Park. Victoria Park is an abstract painter from British Columbia and is one of the highest sellers that uses our art dropshipping service. David Park, Victoria's brother-in-law, runs paid social campaigns professionally and spends millions of pounds on behalf of clients. Together, Victoria and David have created paid social campaigns for her art, which has helped the pace of her career growth. So who better than to speak to on this subject? Running paid ads was not something we ever recommended artists to do, but by listening to this podcast, it's completely changed our thinking on this subject. If you're finding these podcasts useful, before we start, I'd just like to ask you, please copy the link now and send it to a friend via WhatsApp or email who you think might benefit from listening to. And also please make sure you subscribe so you get notifications of podcasts as soon as they come out. Okay, let's get on with the show. Welcome Victoria and David, and thanks very much for joining us today. Thanks so, for having us, Stuart. Great to be here. So I just wanted to start by asking you, Victoria, when did you actually start painting? And when did you realize that, okay, this could actually be a career? That's a great question. It was a long journey for me, starting as soon as I could pick up any form of <laughs> paintbrush or crayon or anything. I had been drawing and painting since, yeah, I was a toddler. I was homeschooled, so I like to think that I majored in in art for <laughs> the first 12 years of that educational period because I could dedicate as much time as I wanted to painting, which has left my administrative skills, which we'll get to later with Dave, <laughs> a little bit lacking. So was that kid that was always drawing, always painting. And after high school, I pursued a little bit going into the art world, doing some group shows, but nothing was really selling. And I thought, okay, I'll apply for art school and maybe that will kickstart my career. I didn't get accepted into my dream university because I didn't have a second language. And that was also due to my homeschooling. Lord bless my mom for not knowing French fluently and being able to teach me that. So it was a really good humbling moment for me because being that kid that was always doing art and I did end up going to high school for the last bit of my education, secondary education. And I was that kid that everyone's all over Torah. She's always drawing. And I was like, oh, it's going to be so easy for me. Go to art school, whatever. And then I was 
just totally disappointed by not getting in. And it was a really good moment for me to just rethink of what is this? Is this who I is? This, how much does this weigh in on my identity as a person and starting this new journey of figuring out me apart from <laughs> art? Because I definitely relied on that a lot. And then I ended up going into illustration, just picked up illustration gigs, ended up going into graphic design, worked at a marketing agency, illustrating graphics for them. And that was really cool because I was in that business environment of the see how companies run and agencies and them managing clients and being a part of those projects. So that was really cool to be a fly on the wall and then as well use my skills. But it was definitely in this, I'm serving the client <laughs> almost 100% with whatever I create. It wasn't, what does Victoria want to paint? What does Victoria want to draw? It's, there's a client brief, you follow the directions. And to me, I thought, this is how an artist makes money as they have to compromise their passion and find a nice little medium where they can dab a little bit, use their skills, but ultimately it's not really from their soul or heart or perspectives. It's you're serving a client, which is wonderful. And it totally serves the need that people have. But after seven years, I only was at the marketing agency for a little bit. And then I ran my own company doing graphic design, freelancing, focused on branding visual storytelling, amazing seven years. But by the end of the seven years, I was so burnt out and I felt like I was just doing it because I thought that was the only way I could make money as an artist. And it was beginning to get more and more empty, even though I could create good work and had wonderful clients, it wasn't fulfilling for me. And so I ended up having a nice breakdown as many People have gone before me. I've heard that it's just that moment where you realize this isn't working. I am so tired. I was having panic attacks. I was overwhelmed with stress. I was having all these health issues. And so I decided to just pull the plug and do something completely different. I needed to work with my hands. That was something that I felt, I just felt it in the deepest part of me that I couldn't be at a computer anymore. I, I want to work with my hands. And so I took up this gig with a a nursery and I was pruning and grading ilex through this it's a winter berry and so I did that for a couple months in freezing temperatures outside pruning and I never felt more happy just doing something with my hands and that gave me a lot of time to to think of what, what do I want to do next and the dream of being an artist was buried for sure <laughs> and I didn't actually think that would be possible and I thought it was too late I thought I should have started when I was 20 or when I was 19 or whatever and I think at this time I was still very young 20 I think at 26 26 and then I yeah I ended up getting pregnant and I worked another job at a floral wholesaler and it was just taking a break and then grew a child, <laughs> had the child. <laughs> and when the child was reaching about, Wilbur is his name, eight, eight months old, I started getting this feeling of, I think I want to paint again. And I think that was due to me just needing some therapy from becoming a mom and having no idea what I just got into and way too many feelings and emotions that could not be expressed without painting and I think that is part of how I was wired from a little girl I just always drew and that part of me had been bottled up and I was about to explode so it was last year yes which still blows me last year 2021 in July I started my painting practice and I at first wasn't taking it seriously I thought I'm just doing it for some extra cash I'm a mom now I can just 
do this in the background. And it just turned into something I never thought would happen. But I just want to do something I loved. I just want to do something I loved again. And the rest is, you see it, the rest is history. I almost don't even know what happened so fast. Yeah, that's a very short time. So what was that kind of moment where you realized this could be a career? What was the trigger point for that? Yeah, there were a lot of other artists I was seeing online that were actually selling out their work and were also moms. And seeing that was amazing. And I'd never seen, I'd never seen an artist sell out, <laughs> especially one that I knew. And so seeing them do it definitely gave me the guts to try it myself. And I tell my husband, Mike, oh, they, these people, they're making art and they're selling it and they get to just paint whatever they want. And maybe I should do it. And I was like, no, I should stay the graphic design. And Mike was always just, yeah, like you could try. And then in summertime, I thought, you know what, maybe I should try this. And he was the one who said, you just got to do it, Victoria. Just do it. Don't think, do, go. And the best piece of advice that I've been given during this whole journey, which was from my husband, Mike, was people don't want a piece of your art. They want a piece of you. And that just propelled me into a way of creating my art by putting who I am actually in the center of it. And that also gave me hope that maybe I could do this because there is only one of me. And even though these other people who are successful, they've been doing it for years, who's to say it's too late for me? Because if people do want a piece of me, I got to give it a shot and I got to put myself out there and not hold back. And that was from the very beginning. I just wanted to have no restraint and I hope that comes through. <laughs> it absolutely does. And yeah, on your feed and on your social it really feels like we're often saying to people it's really important for someone to understand when they look at a painting to feel like why the creator made that to feel mm -hmm. that it's more than just a painting there's a whole story behind it there's a whole feeling behind it I think that varies from painter to painter but there's always something that brought them to this point there's a whole load of emotions in there there's a whole load of backstory and what i take from yours and it comes very clearly across on your social media that there's a lot of joy in in the work and there's also there's the influences of where you live in british columbia which is i don't exactly know where you live there but i know you're never that far from nature <laughs> yeah yeah so there's a whole set of influences there and they just come across and you see when you buy one of those paintings you get the sense of what it is and who made it and was that a kind of a conscious thing to put that across in social media was that hard or was that just a natural thing i think at first it was it felt like I was ripping a bandaid off because you put yourself out there and you, sometimes you don't want to think too hard and just put it out there. Otherwise you'll cringe at yourself or think, oh, what was that? Or was that too much or whatever? And I just thought, I'm just going to be myself and not give a crap about what people think after that and put it out there. And, and, and yeah, as long as all the content is respectfully like kind on the platform and is true to myself i'm like what could go wrong i think the only thing that could go wrong is me being insecure and too afraid and then not showing myself and not sharing that gift of the joy that i have and i and i think with all the other elements like the music and the photography and all those things those are all parts of my experience of also being a musician and dabbling in photography and all these things so it's 
it never was planned, but they just kept coming out. And, and I think that's what makes it so unique when you put yourself in the center of the story, because you have this unique set of skills or experiences and places, and it won't look like mine and I won't look like yours. And I think that's a beautiful thing because you have something to offer that no one else can. And I like not restraining myself just to, oh, I just got to paint, right? It's not, I'm also an entertainer. Like I was the drama kid at school. I grew up with the goofiest brothers right in the middle. I also have eight kids and we're just goofballs. And that, that gives me joy. I grew up with a forest in my backyard and I spent every day almost in that forest outside and so that's also part of the influence of why I love doing my paint outside it reminds me of what it felt like to be a child again right it's pulling all on those things and when people ask me for advice of like how do I do it look at your life what have you done what do you love what was that one thing when you were a little kid that you couldn't stop doing or couldn't stop thinking about how can that be part of your art how can that be part of your story and some people, it's a different strategy to be like, let's let the art speak for itself. And I think that works for a few people. <laughs> but I think in most cases, you need to speak for your art because your art isn't just art. It's actually part of you and your perspective. And showing people that whole picture has been very successful for me. And I think for lots of others. Was that a skill that you developed over time to, to show that through social media? Because... I guess it's one thing saying, okay, look, I'm going to put it out there and I'm not going to give a damn about what people think. And that's a fantastic approach to have. And there's a kind of presentational aspect to doing that, isn't there? And you've still got, it's still got to be coherent, like mm -hmm. the sense of editing within the attention span, for example, that somebody has on social media. They have, totally. you know, yeah. what is it, like 30 seconds or something like that? So being yourself, you might want to do 10 minutes of like... <laughs> totally, yeah. Or have me just like in my kitchen. Yeah, but people get bored of that. Yeah, and <laughs> I definitely do not show all my life. I, I have yeah. a toddler and I, as a parent yourself, behind the scenes of what's going on there, it's pretty wild. And that that is where... Yeah, there is a bit of a choosing of what am I going to show? And I see it with Instagram. It's a collaboration of there's a platform out there that I can use for free. I, yes, I also do paid social, but my reels, all those, when they get organic reach, it's organic reach. I don't, our ads are separate from that. And it's this platform that's actually, it's a service to me. And I also want to service the people that are on there. And I, for one, have a very short attention span. So I think if I was watching this as a viewer, would I stick around for the next five seconds after this? And we, me and Dave talk a lot about a visual hook, especially with ads and like creating a very engaging visual snapshot right at the beginning to get your viewer's attention and hopefully bring something of value to them that they can see, oh, this is what's going to come. And so there's definitely a, that marketing side of my brain that, that wants to curate who I am in a way that's going to serve people regardless of buying a print or a painting like that is still a gift to that person that can view for free that mm. that might get some joy and live vicariously through me on top of the mountains and that is my mission at the end of the day is I want to give people a gift and make art as inclusive as it can be, even if you don't have the budget for it. One of the videos that I saw of yours, one of the reels, you have your son walking down the corridor 
And yeah. you're saying it's fantastic for him because having an artist as a mom, he gets to be surrounded by amazing things. And it's like you see him going down this corridor and hooks you in. It's really clever because I'm sitting there going, what's he going to see when he pushes <laughs> open the door at the end of the corridor? Oh, yeah. And then it's really bright light inside mm -hmm. and you're there and you're there surrounded by your art. And so there is that aspect to crafting the video side of it. Mm -hmm. I think that's that a lot of artists do struggle with in the sense that it might not necessarily be at the start their niche or whatever. Was it a process to learn that? Did, was that a kind of whole skill? Because you do have this limited time with people and you do want to get across what drives you. Yeah, absolutely. That was at the beginning of the account. I used to run a music account for my music before, and I would do a lot of like skits and comedic, entertaining, that kind of thing. And so going to the art world is, okay, how do I create a message that reflects how I feel about my art? Which is, yeah, it comes across entertaining in some ways, but in, in, in most ways, it is a very deep pit in my soul that I'm just playing on there. And it took me a few months to just start creating reels. I would look at what I liked, on Instagram, what reels would catch my attention? I go, oh, I stopped. Why did that catch my attention? Is it the music? Is it the way they edited it? So I would take some notes and then I tried my own. And then I also experimented with my own storytelling ideas. And one of them was the start to finish of a painting and showing the whole journey, but then sprinkling in the inspiration and shots of me painting and also with nature. And then that I believe was one of my first reels that really took off and that was okay that's good data <laughs> let's mm -hmm. keep doing more like that and it's an ever-growing process even it always changes even now i'm still changing my strategy or my editing style of telling a story based on how instagram and people are adapting on instagram and what people like and what 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 reels get more attention and just taking notes and i know it can be draining for some people to think, oh, I'm just like always curating myself for this thing. But I see it as a fun challenge and of like, how can I put myself, make it feel like me? I don't have to be like these people. I don't have to do that dance move or whatever, but like, how can I take what's good from that and use it in my own way in, in my own storytelling? And that's something that when we talk about ads, like the storytelling aspect is huge because our most successful, most of our most successful ones have been telling some sort of story in a yeah. short window. And you don't see that really in the ad world. It's usually buy and that's yeah. it, right? So we really strive to connect the customers or the collectors and the audience with me. And then if they like that, then it would be a joy for them to purchase my art, right? It's offering them something that's valuable. And if you like it, here it is. If not, all good, but storytelling, I think, is the foundation of the success of our marketing campaigns. That's that's really interesting you say this, and I'd like to bring you in, David, on that, because I know that you've been quite instrumental in a lot of the paid social campaigns. We've never actually had that much experience of talking to people on this podcast who have done paid social, so it's really fascinating to hear about that. So how does it differ, David, to how you would approach, say, the organic social? Good question. If I think back to when we got started with the paid side, 
we actually started by amplifying what she had already created. So she had been creating the reels similar to what you've already seen on her social channels. And we said, what would happen if we just put a small budget behind these? What would the cost of traffic be? Like how much reach could we get? Would it expand her audience? Would the people that see the videos through a paid channel click through and follow her account maybe like what like what would happen so it's just a fun experiment for additional context too like i'm victoria's brother-in-law so it's kind of a family thing like her husband mike is a good bro to me and we're super close and my day job is a media buyer so i spend many millions of dollars on paid social as my profession so i had a lot of context on what does good look like if you're going to start running paid social what does good look like so we were just having some fun really the initial kind of launch of this project seems to be going well let's see what happens if we basically amplify that and so we just took her existing reels we were like let's bring them into the ads manager and launch them to see what happens and really within a matter of days i was like this basically the, all my core kpis or my metrics inside of the platform were telling me there's definitely a winning formula here the audience likes the content and they're very responsive to it and we did start seeing a pretty meaningful growth in the audience and i think when we started with paid socially it was about 400 instagram followers and then we started seeing like a pretty meaningful increase in follower growth within a matter of days. So that was to answer your question. We started with really what she'd already created and, and Victoria mentioned we use visual hooks quite a bit and she had a natural sense of visual hooks in her editing style before we started doing any strategy at all. There was already a really great eye catching sense to it that I was like, this could work. Yeah, that, that was the beginning of it. It definitely evolved from there. I'll spare you the technical details of how you grow a campaign over a year and the iterations and testing of audiences and creative, but we did start to get deep into specific editing styles and like she mentioned, visual hooks and looking at trends on social media platforms of what's going to stop the thumb scroll. So there's this thing called thumb stop ratio in media buying, which is the percent of audience that sees the ad that actually stops scrolling through. So we started tracking, okay, what's the thumb stop ratio and how can we increase that based on different types of things? And so sometimes she would already have edited a video and we said, what if we swap that one clip to the beginning and see if that gives us additional thumb stop ratio? So we just started thinking a bit more analytical, tracking some of the KPIs in platform was kind of where we got started there. You mentioned about these visual hooks. Just to give some context to people, could you give some examples of the ones that worked really well? Sure, and I'll definitely get Victoria to speak to this too. So one of the, one of the things that worked initially was there was a lot of progress work. So we'd start with a wide shot of her kind of doing some work. And then within a matter of seconds, it would zoom into a kind of a close up of the progress in place. So an example of how we would test an alternate would be like we would start with the close up. So one one really successful thing that we noticed on the platform was like really detailed, ultra detailed close up shots of the painting in action or water going onto the canvas or something like that had a great effect. Oh, and by the way, as an aside, 
we also use audio as a hook as well. So you can use visual hooks, you can use audio hooks. So we've done ASMR versions of stuff where she, you know she'll just like record super detailed audio of the painting in progress. And those have been super effective as well. I think if I would give an answer like in a more broad sense, it's really, I think what Victoria said is it's about the storytelling for the visual hooks, right? So mm -hmm. trying to pull somebody in as quickly as possible into a story that's like a process. And by the way, too, just another thing, I'll let Victoria speak to this. I think the pacing of the cuts is really important. So mm -hmm. if you think of the visual hook as the, fir the first two to three seconds of an edit, that's your visual hook opportunity. So you could have five clips that happened within three seconds quite easily. So you can actually combine things into a visual hook. But Victoria, did you have any thoughts on the visual hook aspect? Yeah, you're definitely on track. I like what you're saying about you want to take someone, you want to show them where you're going in the story. And I found some of my biggest reels have been, it's me walking with a canvas about to go somewhere to paint for just a second or two mm -hmm. seconds, and then I'm painting. So people already feel like they're on the ride and they're in the moment with me. So, yeah. That's that's a kind of instant, what's going to happen here? What, yeah. What, what's going to paint? What's, hang on, you're in this beautiful location. You've got a blank, it's obviously a blank canvas, right? So it's a really nice kind of, there's that curiosity angle, isn't there? That always, that's probably a big driver of thumb stop. I love that yeah. term, by the way. I love it. Yeah, <laughs> thumb stop ratio. So we have another one, by the way, is video view ratio, which is of the total folks who see it, how many make it to 25% of the video. So just taking a peek at that stuff, it could really help set a bit of a compass on thinking about content strategy, because it's like, I'm just reaching more people. If what I'm trying to do here is grow my audience, and this is giving me a very clear signal on how I'm doing that better, the thumb stop ratio and the video views ratios are super great for that. Definitely. It's one of the core KPIs that I use with many brands that I work with. It's right up there at the top of our lists. What's the ideal length of paid video, paid reels? Is there an ideal length? We don't pay super close attention to that, particularly for Victoria's brand. I think for some brands and like you might want to optimize for a longer view time, but total video length, actually, we don't pay attention to as long as that thumb stop ratio is where we would want it. And the video views ratio is where you would want it. Those are the key things. Then we do track many other indicators. I don't know how technical you want to get, but even cost per click is a super easy indicator. Like the ads showing how much does it cost for a single click through to whether it's the website or her social page or CPMs, which is the cost per thousand impressions. So tracking, those are also good, what we call proxy indicators for the success or how receptive is the audience to the content. What's your goal with a paid piece of content with a paid video? Is it, is it to get a follow? Is it to get someone through to the website to sign up to the newsletter or is it a sale or is it a combination it's really all of that so we had, we when we originally started it was from scratch an ad account with zero spend there's no data what we do is very it's data oriented so there's an acquisition of data process that happens when you start a new account so at the beginning the goal was basically to drive clicks to her Instagram page. So the goal there is let's see if we can get folks to go to her Instagram page. And if they go there, do they follow? So is that something we can get to work? 
And that worked immediately. And then we actually stuck with that formula for about three months. And what we found was that the clicks turned into follows, the follows turned into website visits, the website visits turned into email subscribers, the email subscribers turned into purchasers. So we had put together like a simple kind of marketing funnel stack, right? We did some workshopping on the website, got her set up with kind of the essential direct-to-consumer Shopify, Klaviyo stack, got that all integrated. And then we were able to start capturing audience members through Instagram and then all the way through onto the website. And it definitely led to sales. The question was how much of this audience growth is going to lead to corresponding sales. So it was just a wait and see type thing. And then it slowly just started growing and the sales grew along with it. Yeah. That's interesting. So if you were starting to do paid, paid social now, I think what you're saying is that you wouldn't expect to get like a load of sales right off the bat. You'd expect there to be a progression of deepening relationship effectively with the person who sees the ad. So first of all, they might say, I'm going to follow you because I want to see more of this content because I really like it. And then they're going to eventually click through and they're going to say, Hey, I want to get the newsletter because I'm going to get more of this content and I don't have to just rely on the algorithm to show it to me. I know I'm going to get it through the newsletter. And plus yeah. I might get some additional content that that's not even on, on, on the feed. And then eventually it goes through to sell it. Is that the kind of expectation that someone should have? So they shouldn't just say, I'm going to spend, I don't know, a thousand dollars on some ads and I'm going to expect $5,000 in sales back. Yeah, precisely. Yeah. So we talk about the purchase conversion lag. There's definitely a lag in that whole the customer journey, right? I mean, if you, you could call it a customer journey, call it a collector journey. I mean, like what we've noticed with Victoria's audience is that, that because she's so vulnerable and so expressive, she, like she's super, super real. There really is a very real relationship building thing that's going on there. And that takes time to, to develop. It, it's not like an instant thing. And they want to, they see a piece of content on social, they follow her and then immediately they want to buy. We actually have analytics mechanisms in our marketing stack that allow us to get a broad sense of how long that journey takes. It varies. I think typical turnaround is three or four weeks is like a common one that we've seen, but sometimes it can even be longer. But yeah, there's absolutely like, I think when we started spending, it was like, okay, we're just going to look at audience growth. We'll keep spending. And then there's this launch coming up. I think it was like a launch that happened a month or six weeks after we started spending. And so it was like, it was very small amounts of money too. So low budget, a little bit of spending audience was growing. We're like, that's a good thing. And then we just, yeah, we did have to wait it out to see the revenue come through. That's for sure. And that journey is that specific example. When we started in November, I had just released a series a couple of weeks before and hadn't sold out. There was still. I think half of the pieces were left, but when we started the marketing pieces, one by one, just started selling. And then we grew, we started the, a customer journey at the end of November. And these people that had been following around, following along with the next series, got to see the whole series start to finish. And then that series sold out in under an hour. And just to speak to that, we're running paid. So we're growing the audience. She's getting new followers. And then to her organic feed, she's telling the story daily of this new series coming into existence. And so these new followers who maybe they saw like a little tidbit from the last series or like a little start to 
finished process video or some just general process video. Now they're getting what in, in, in my world, we call it remarketing on organic. So we've acquired a new follower and then she's posting organically to her feed, which we don't have to pay for that to get through. That's just naturally going to serve. And then now we have this little funnel, this little marketing funnel, or this little relationship that, that starts to get nurtured over time. I would also like to add something of the difference between the say content going viral versus what we do with paid that I find is a really smart move for artists with the paid social is that we actually are able to get the audience that would purchase an original painting that actually has that budget for these larger pieces versus I've seen a lot of videos that will go viral usually you actually end up attracting other artists, which is amazing, that are inspired by your work, which is great. And that serves a purpose, but those people aren't necessarily going to buy your yeah. high-priced art. And so it, that was yeah. something that for us, it actually guarantees, it doesn't guarantee, but in a sense, it does guarantee that you are actually reaching people that would be potential collectors versus relying on i'll just do it for free instagram's yeah. free i can go viral maybe but are you getting the right customers yeah that's definitely worth emphasizing for your audience i think as like a key differentiator between organic and paid so with organic victoria could put together a really cool piece that that gets a huge amount of reach organically and the question is how is that What's the mechanism there? And the mechanism is the engagement through organic channels incentivizes Instagram's kind of algorithm to, to give it more reach, right? So what that's going to do is grow an audience, but more reach on organic doesn't necessarily mean these are customers, like buyers of art, right? So what we were able to do with the paid social, as Victoria said, is we capture customer data, customer interactions of the people who actually bought and then we target audiences using the paid that are customer audiences. And then we're growing the audience of people who actually are not just they wanting to consume the content on organic, they actually want to purchase art. So that's been really cool to see where you can refine who sees the content a little bit more to make sure that these are potential customers that are actually seeing the content. That's so fascinating. I never even thought about that. It makes so much sense because we see some correlation, some sometimes with amount of followers and sales, but often actually it's not the people yeah. with the most followers that, that sell the most amount of art. It's really interesting because again, Victoria, you're, I think if not the highest individual seller, I think you're in the top three in terms of all the people that sell for us. And yet there are people with 10 times the amount of following who are selling a lot less than you. Yeah. And I think that speaks exactly to what you're both saying. It's not about the number of people. That's just vanity. Yeah. It's about who right. you're targeting, right? Yeah. I don't want to belabor it too much, but I'll give a really simple example. So when we're building a campaign in the paid platform, you can choose exactly what you want that campaign to do for you. Do you want this campaign to create a link click to a page or do you want it to create a purchase? Do you want it to drive a purchase? Now I won't get into tons of detail, but that for the first six months, we couldn't actually do a purchase optimized campaign because we needed more data 
before we could actually optimize for that action. There's a whole tech stack that goes into making this work, right? But at first it was just link clicks. We just want link clicks. Let's get people to click and see what happens. And then over time you switch it to a purchase conversion. And that means Facebook is, they're looking for purchasers. So we can grow the audience and find people who are genuinely looking to make a purchase. Yeah. I'd like to ask you a favor. If you're enjoying this episode, please could you forward the podcast to one person right now who you think might benefit? The more people we can get listening to these podcasts, the more content we can create for you to help move your careers forward. Please subscribe and please forward the podcast right now. Okay, let's get back to the episode. Okay, and how do you target geographically? Because I notice in your work, Victoria, you it's obviously heavily influenced by the place you live. Does that kind of influence your targeting? For example, do you would you target someone living in a big city in Asia or Europe? Would they would you feel like they would relate to that less? I think for us, we've done not very specific geo targeting for Vancouver, BC. We've done a much bigger brushstroke for Canada and the US. But then through through just the algorithms that the ad manager does, it also reaches people that live outside as well as through my organic reach on Instagram. So the audience is quite worldwide and then it's about 50% is Canada and the US. And it's almost about an even split between the two. Some of that happened naturally, and then we can then put more spend behind that if we see something is working in a region, but we haven't yet gone, we haven't intentionally sought outside of North America. That's just happened naturally. People have found you organically from lots of different places. And yeah. Do you see the same kind of conversion rates? Because one example I could think of, right, from the top of my head, we printed a show years ago now, the first ever show by this guy, Mr. Doodle. I don't know if you know this guy, Mr. Doodle. Yeah, right? I do, I do. <laughs> he's quite a character and he's amazing. He just blew up huge in Asia and people in Asia absolutely love his work. And so there is just sometimes some resonance like with a certain culture or geographically or whatever that people have with work and it speaks to them in some kind of way. But that's not necessarily always going to be obvious to you because you're not going to know necessarily what the kind of cultural appeal is going to be in, in places mm -hmm. you've never really spent time in or, or whatever. So yeah. do you deliberately throw a bit of a, a wide net there and look at, oh, wow, the people in Korea and Japan, they love this or in South America, wherever it might be. Did you look at that and feed that back into it? Yeah, we've had ongoing discussions from the very beginning about the geographic opportunities. We haven't explored it as much as I would like. Obviously we've had many things going on. So we think that's something we're going to expand into more in 2023. We did some testing of some specific geos in the UK and on both Instagram and Pinterest and saw some good results. And then we were like, maybe we'll focus on North America. So currently we are majority. North America at this point from a paid standpoint, obviously the organic component is global for sure. And we definitely, there's a, there's some amount of revenue coming from global audiences for sure. Yeah. I think it's just a matter of we're going to, I think incrementally expand into those geos and basically broaden the testing. When we initially started, we were very focused on Canada that had the most traction initially. And then now I think 
the U.S. has surpassed Canada from a revenue standpoint, but it's act, but Canada is still quite strong. I think there is a geographic component to like the BC coast, the nature mm -hmm. component of all that, that definitely strikes a chord, but we've also gotten, there's been some really cool people. I mean, that Victoria's become friends with actually that, that are from the UK, for example, that are fans of the work. And I think the work itself will also influence that as yeah. we're hoping to do more travel next year and yeah and bringing my paintings with me somewhere outside of Canada or when we within Canada and yeah, I definitely have a wish list and we're, we're probably gonna work it out that yeah me and my husband and a little guy can actually travel and bring a whole body of work with us and tell a story about place mm -hmm. that we're experiencing but there has been a lot of resonance with the work especially in Europe because it is actually similar in a lot of ways. We get a lot of rain, <laughs> a lot of mountains like Switzerland and Germany and UK, Ireland. I've had so many people say, this reminds me exactly like summer in my home, or this totally looks like our mountains that I sketched in BC. So there is there's definitely some resonance there. When I look at your work, I very much get a really amazing flavor of Canada and the rural aspects of where you live, which I've spent a little bit of time there. And it would just be really interesting to see you go to different places and to see that reflected in your work. And it got me thinking about how important is it to have those projects where it's thematically different? The doing the work in series has been how I've always done it since I started last year. So I don't know different in other cases where some artists will just do one-off piece and it's available or they have a print shop and they might add new prints every once in a while. But I was really attracted to that idea because I enjoyed that watching other artists tell a story over the span of two to three months where I got to see the very beginnings to the very end, the climax of all the work being released. And that to me is a story and it's a long, it's a long form story. And I think that also is refreshing to feel like you're journeying with somebody, like how we like TV shows when we feel like we're part of these people's lives and we think about them like, oh my goodness, what's gonna happen next? And it's like, there's this emotional connection. I think the same goes for working in a series is that it is this longer form story and you don't know what's gonna happen next. And I don't know, I tell people this all the time, they're like, what's the next series? I mean, I don't actually know until I start painting. And that is really fun. And I think that does pique people's curiosity, right? Oh, maybe I wanna stick around and see how this turns out. But yeah, I think it definitely helps us with people purchasing artworks. And then that gives us a full story, a lot of content for Dave to work with too, with creating ads and building up our funnel, so to speak, of people that are interested in the work and then having the originals release all in one day, have that big boom, and then doing our print release hopefully a week later. And it's a lot of, there's a lot of anticipation and build up. And I really like change. And so this also just works with my personality is I love change. And so I am happy to finish a series and then, okay, we're going to just pack our bags and go over here and we're going to do a whole new thing. And if it's not your cup of tea, I'm going to do another series after that's going to be di totally different, inspired by something different. And I think that brings a lot of value to people and people enjoy being part of a story, actually feeling part of my life because it is a big part of my life. And this work reflects that. Uh, I think the site's fantastic. It's got an amazing sort of backstory and your influences to how you became an artist. 
do you see at some point there being a place on that site to show your archive and to show this journey and to show those blocks of work maybe you've traveled to europe and you spent three months here and you've produced mm -hmm. a body of work here and do you see that as important for you or do you see that as a bit of a distraction maybe no i think it's absolutely important that's actually something we've been working on with the print shop because before you just go on a page and it had the prints <laughs> and mm. now when you go shop prints we've actually divided it into collections so you can shop by series and when you select that you'll it's a, you want the experience to be similar to if you're buying an original so when you buy an original there's a picture of me with the body of work and then there is the backstory or the write-up that explains my thoughts and my perspective on why I made this body of work. And so we also added that for each print series. And I would love to expand that more and have maybe some key videos in that experience. And it's definitely something that we're always evolving is the website and how to make that a better customer experience. Absolutely. Yeah. And how do you find the other social media platforms? Have you tried any sort of paid social, for example, on TikTok, and I think you said you tried Pinterest. How, how do they compare in terms of building that relationship with a collector over time? Yeah, so we've tested TikTok and Pinterest, and we're on Google as well. So we're covering a pretty broad spectrum. I think we're gonna test both Pinterest and TikTok more this coming year. We'll have more bandwidth to just expand and do broader testing. We didn't see traction at the same level, but I'm super optimistic about both platforms, frankly. In particular, Pinterest, I'm super optimistic about. And by the way, we use a lot of the same content that we use on Instagram. We just bring it right over. I think one of the things on our roadmap map is to actually get more Pinterest specific content and iterate on that there. And then the same for TikTok. But yeah, it didn't have as much traction. I think there there were there's a bunch of reasons for that, but I think Victoria's really mastered the kind of the language is it the very native kind of Instagram vibe. And there was also some things that Facebook and Instagram were doing with their tech stack. They're actually changing the software of the reels. It's been publicly shared that they are iterating how the, their tech stack works to match TikTok a little bit more. And so that definitely all to, to give a lot of tailwind for Victoria's project. As I understand it, there's a slightly different demographic on TikTok. And does that mean that you have to make content in a slightly different way, in a slightly different style? Yeah, that's definitely on my radar for next year is to, like my, like Dave said, it's just the bandwidth. My bandwidth is increasing as my daycare is increasing at next year. And that is something I've really wanted to get on the TikTok train, but honestly, just I've been maxed out and we've been just focusing. And for next year, I definitely see a very different strategy. Maybe reusing some things that I post on Instagram, but it's a different experience on TikTok and one that I think I will enjoy very much, given that it's <laughs> even more lo-fi and even more just relaxed. And whereas I find Instagram is a place where people go to see beautiful things and it is very mm -hmm. much a visual invitation over there whereas TikTok it's a little bit more to be entertained and so it just changes the flavor a bit so I hope to have fun with that and mix it up a bit over there
is it always whether you're on pinterest TikTok, or instagram is it always about leading people back to the newsletter is that to sign up and have a sort of deeper conversation we do track that closely so we're as part of our marketing staff we track the cost of email acquisition per platform per ad initiative so we're monitoring we have a way to attribute basically if somebody subscribes which channel were they on before they subscribed and that gives us a sense of because we do really want to track that as a leading indicator of purchase intent ultimately it's like if they're subscribed to the list that's probably a good indicator that they're likely a purchaser down the line so yeah we definitely track that quite closely okay and it's really refreshing to talk with you both about this kind of the depth you go into with thinking about the marketing side of things and i think that so many artists would really feel like that they shouldn't think about this in this way but in some way it's detrimental to the concept of being an artist which obviously from what we see it's just part and parcel of being an artist if you want to make work and sustain a career then you've got to think about it seriously about reaching your audience and ultimately someone's going to buy your painting and they're going to feel a sense of joy to have it on their walls so why shouldn't yeah. we you know, take it seriously to reach people and market them how do you feel about that and what would you say to people victoria who feel like oh maybe this is thinking too commercially and that's not what an artist should i can really speak to that because i had the same misconception <laughs> which was if i did paid marketing i just feel like i'm a sellout which is so funny because the name of this podcast is sellout which i'm a big fan of and yeah so it's been a journey for me there's a i feel like there's a misconception yeah that you're selling out your art should speak for itself or you shouldn't have to pay for people to see it and I, that's what i thought and then when we started bringing Dave on, my perspective shifted, which was people started writing me messages saying, I'm so happy I found your ad. I love your work. It's bringing me so much joy. Like I kept getting these messages and I'm like, oh my gosh. So you're telling me that ads are just bringing value to the people that want it. And it just blew my mind. And I'm big ad stand now because you can tell a story that's meaningful and advertise that and someone else finds that meaningful you're actually giving a gift to that person and yeah maybe they'll collect original work or print or just view but that is actually a really beautiful exchange and in no way is that me being a sellout and i think um yeah i'm sure other artists judge me for doing it but that's okay because i don't serve artists i love to inspire them and i'm so happy to when they're inspired but i serve my collectors people that want to go along the ride with me. And this is me pitching to them, not to you. And I think a lot of artists need to let go of wanting to please the pretentious artist council inside their heads and realize yeah. if you love this work, <laughs> you will do whatever it takes for other people to enjoy it too. And yeah. yeah. I would just add to, I, I empathize with that feeling in a big way. I was a musician and songwriter and filmmaker for 20 years before I became a marketing consultant. And so I definitely remember as a young musician and songwriter, this feeling of I should just have to do the art and that's it. And then I, my wandering journey transitioned into like business and big business, business executive side of things. So my brain switched over and then you realize 
actually this is how the most successful artists do it is actually because they've they haven't been shy of this there's actually a book called real artists don't starve that i would recommend it's a great read and it gives the other side of the story which is actually this there's a way of looking at marketing and growing the audience and even self-promotion through a framework that's actually very positive where it's an active service to your audience to to expand and make that all possible from a financial standpoint. Yeah, that's brilliant to hear you both say that because we've spoken to hugely successful artists who have self-sustaining careers. And actually a lot of the stories were, I was doing this job, this commercial job, and I couldn't I'm doing this and I, something had to change. And so they came to this realization that, look, I'm just going to try consciously pushing my work out there because I really want this to happen. These are inspiring stories to tell and they're fantastic. But in some senses, it, it's a long journey to come to that realization. You don't have to go through that long journey to have that realization. You can just realize it now. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> You have to you have to put yourself out there and it's as simple as that. And I guess also this that thing that you used to have galleries which would do this for you. So you were like removed in the same way musicians can have PR companies or record companies and, and you used to be removed from that. So you could mm -hmm. just do your thing. And, but this now everybody can reach their audience directly and it's fantastic that they can because they're not reliant on somebody else to validate their work and say, okay, this deserves to be in a gallery and, and this doesn't, mm -hmm. but it also puts the onus back on you to say, actually, you are going to have to push yourself out there if you want to do mm -hmm. this. Absolutely. The environment for the art industry is changed. And I think a lot of people are still living like it was 10, 20 years ago and it's not the same. And so it's definitely a, there's growing pains for people because we do have to evolve and adjust and uh, yeah. What's your feeling now on how Instagram's changing in terms of growing a following and stuff like that? Is is it still possible to do that organically or is it something where you have to blend some paid social to do that? That's I think you that's a big question. You absolutely <laughs> can do both, I think, yeah. but it all comes down to the person. And yeah. also the magic wand of Instagram that decides what goes viral and what doesn't. You, I could lose my brain trying to figure out how Instagram selects these people. So yeah, for us, it was definitely a blend of both. And the paid gave us a significant boost into reaching people early on because we're just yeah. over a year doing this. But yeah, yeah. Dave, we, do you want to speak to any of that? We did notice even paid boost the organic reach because it all feeds into different algorithms. I think a key thing I would call out just around your question is be ready is what the advice I would give is just be ready. And then as Victoria said, focus on the content. So you like Facebook or meta as they're called now could flip a switch and all of a sudden you could get three X, five X or 10 X the reach just on a given day. They could ship an update to the machine learning algorithm or change. They could ship a software update. And then all of a sudden you could have this incredible opportunity to grow your audience and have incredible reach out of nowhere. So be ready and make sure that the content, just work on the content daily, so build that fluency with these social platforms and sharing your story on these social platforms so that 
whether it's an organic moment where you get something that that goes viral or you decide to test some paid will only work if the content is good enough right if it's going to have that thumb stopping effect so focus on the content first and then your opportunity will probably come with the content being in that spot and then you never know like i've seen it time and time again all of a sudden a new software update ships and the dynamics of reach on these platforms evolves overnight. And because of that ever changing evolution, it's all the more important to be building your mailing list in, in the background because we love Instagram. I love it. I know people hate it and think it's lording over them, but I'm like, Hey, their business, they're doing me a service by even giving me this platform for free. But in the end, like I'm not in control and what I am control of is my mailing list and prioritizing that definitely is something i tell artists to keep in mind while you grow because you could get hacked you get like all these things can happen and yeah keeping all the work you've so you've pursued for so long and to lose it all in a moment is really hard it's great advice because i think that everybody's worried that if they build up a large following and they spend that time building it up then maybe the same thing will happen that happened with Facebook, in the sense, they literally cut organic to zero, I think, pretty much, right? There's always that kind of sense of, okay, yeah. the rug could be pulled out from under me, but, yeah. but then again, something else comes along and you can, I, I guess it's just that adaptability, isn't it? I was just going to say that nimbleness, it, Victoria has this incredible, she's digitally native, right? She's been a creator for many years and it's like, I've had the opportunity to watch her become more fluent with this whole thing that is social media. And that can adapt regardless of what happens on the different platforms. So I definitely just like learning that skill is a huge asset. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Once you're fluent, you can adapt on the fly and be nimble. Excellent. All right. Usually I finish this off with just asking if you were giving advice to someone just starting out right now, what would you say to them are the three most important things they could do? to give themselves the best chance of success. And as we've got both of you here, we're going to get six pieces of advice. David, do you want to go first? Okay, sure. I'll, I think it's, I'll, uh, Victoria will speak to this better than I could, but I would just say three pieces of advice. I would say, take counsel, take action and don't delay would be my three things. And Victoria, what are your three oh, pieces? Yeah. <laughs> That's going to be a lot more long-winded than Dave's. <laughs> The classic park. I married his brother. I'm like, that's what Mike would say. Just give it three words. Good to go. Yeah, not so much. I'll try to narrow it down to three. I think number one, people don't want a piece of your art. They want a piece of you. And two, connecting to that piece is tell your story as tell your story as visually and as quickly as possible through your reels, through your posts, through getting a snapshot on your Instagram profile of tell that story as quickly as just as four seconds, all someone has, they can get a feel for who you are, what you do, why you do it. And then the third piece would be learn from people who are successful in what you want to do and take notes. Yes, you can reach out to them, but there's so much that I have learned and gleaned from not even messaging them, just watching how they do things, their messaging, how they structure their workflow. Are they doing series? Are they doing one-offs? Are they working with galleries? And yeah, take notes and never too late. And there's always so much to learn. Don't ever stay in one place. Keep learning. 
Amazing. Like, Thank you very much, David and Victoria, for your time today. It's amazing advice and thanks for sharing it with us. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having us on. It's such an honor.